0: This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs Season 2. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist that works in Halifax, part-time community and part-time university. As residents, you don't often get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your own centre, but this podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. The expert that's joining me on this episode is Dr. Mary Lou Baxter. She's one of my previous teachers and what I would consider to be one of my female dermatology mentors. She's an assistant professor here at Dalhousie University. She spends part-time community practice and she also co-manages the Volvar Dermatology Clinic here in Halifax as well. Mary Lou, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Dermalogues. It's my pleasure, Carrie. You know what's interesting? I've done many Dermalogues, and this is the very first time that I'm actually in the same room physically as the person that I'm interviewing. So welcome, literally, in person. So when I was considering what the topic should be for Dermalog Season 2, certainly genital dermatology came top of mind, and also we've recorded... Um, an episode with Dr. Duaron talking about male genital dermatology, and of course, female or vulvar dermatology is something that everybody's going to see in their practice. And to be perfectly frank, I don't know that everybody gets a lot of exposure to. We're lucky here in Dal because we had Dr. Baxter's vulvar dermatology clinic, and so we got to go very frequently and get really comfortable with not only the exam, but the conditions, biopsies, etc. But Mary Lou, I was hoping we can maybe chat about some of the things that, that you taught me and uh, be able to have the other residents across the country learn those things. For sure. Now, this is something that I like to ask everybody, but what is it that made you interested in vulvar dermatoses in the first place?
1: That's a great question, Carrie. I mean, we all as dermatologists see patients with vulvar disorders, and I guess part of my interest lay in the fact that A, it was a big challenge, there was lots I didn't know, and so I wanted to learn more about the area, and secondly that this is a very high needs group of patients who are extremely grateful when you can actually make a difference, and not that all of our patients aren't so, but this particular group is somewhat even more so. So I spent a little bit of time going to some conferences and learning a little bit more about vulvar dermatology and then joined the gynecologist who was already running a vulvar clinic at our hospital. And since I did that uh,
0: approximately 10 years ago, I've learned a ton more. And I think that's an interesting thing um, that you said. It really is life-changing for a lot of patients. And I have to say one of the things that I really enjoy, including I saw somebody back today who had extreme vulvar itch. I gave her a topical treatment for her lichen sclerosis. She came back and said, oh, my God, I'm so much better, you know, so thankful. And I think it really does make a quality of life difference. Um, when you're thinking about sort of, I guess I'm going to back up and say, okay, we're talking to dermatology residents. They know some basics, um, obviously, about dermatology uh, history and physical. But when you're thinking about the vulvar patient, when you go in for that consult, what type of thing specifically might be you focusing on? in history that you might not talk about in a regular derm consult.
1: So sort of unique questions that you may ask a patient involved with dermatology would be to be very specific about their symptoms, because uh, they may complain of itch, and they may complain of pain, they may complain of dyspareunia. And knowing what their main symptom is really helps you to sort of go down a, a different path, depending on the, di- or trying to get to the diagnosis and treatment. So I think that's really important. The timeline is critical. And I think most importantly, the impact on their quality of life, as Carrie said, because this is a subject that a lot of female patients feel very uncomfortable talking to their physicians about, especially when it gets into issues of sexuality. So I think being comfortable sort of opening the door and allowing them to express the impact of this disease or this, this symptom on their
0: uh, quality of life is really very important. I guess just uh, drawing on that, if you see, so you know, I, I know that you're often taking a more thorough sexual history from patients that might come in with a genital complaint, but um, let's say that you have a younger patient and you want to broach that sexual history, are you the type of person that would ask if there might be a parent or caregiver to step out or how would you tend to do that in this instance? Because it is really important in particular. It's very important and uh, so
1: we would exactly do that. Oftentimes if it's a teenager who comes to our clinic, they are accompanied by a particular mother and so we're very open. We say we need to ask you some questions that might be quite sensitive. Is this something you'd rather have us do one-on-one or would you prefer to have your parent in in attendance. And it's quite interesting how often these young women will want their mothers in attendance, which makes it all that much
0: more comfortable. That's true. And I think people are probably a lot more open with parents than they maybe used to be, quote, back in the day, if you will. But um, so that's great. The other thing I was thinking about on history, and I remember um, asking a lot around the products that might be used in the area when you're thinking about potential things like contact allergens. And are there some very specific products that right now might be on vogue or that we really don't want to miss? Like, you know, should we be asking everybody about jade eggs and whatever whatever else Goop is suggesting? So it is true. One
1: has to, b- besides asking what prescription products they've had, it's very important to ask the patient what over-the-counter or non-prescription treatments they've used. And in most cases, there is a long list because a lot of women will try to treat this dis- these disorders on their own before even seeking medical attention. And so the, the real big red flags would be over-the-counter analgesics, anti-itch products, particularly those containing benzocaine, are commonly used by women in this group. And of course, as we know, benzocaine is benzocaine's a common contact allergen. And so we, we question specifically about products for itch and pain. We ask about uh, soaps. We ask about Baby wipes, which are very commonly used again by people in the genital area, both men and women in the anal genital area, I should say. And I think that's a key. Also, things like um, menstrual pads or incontinence pads or panty liners, uh, brand, uh, which specific type they're using, because we can certainly guide people in that direction. Um, and other than that, there's a huge, huge range of over the counter products and clean cleansing agents and you name it that people will use and so it's really uh, oftentimes our nurse will assist us in going through this as they counsel the patient on vulvar skincare and they often come up with even more information than we've gotten in our history.
0: Right and do you find still you know I guess in contemporary times many people are using these douching products or does that seem to be sort of passe. Yeah, not as many douching products anymore. People tend to be using a lot of sort of
1: external cleansers and wipes Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, but we're not seeing as much. Don't forget that MCIMI.
0: That's right. The wipes. Exactly. Now, okay, so we've taken our history, we've gotten what we need to do. We want to go in now and do a, a focused physical exam. So maybe could you walk me through how you do a general exam? Like who's in the room? How do you drape? How do you talk to the patient? What are some pearls?
1: For sure, Carrie. Well, first of all, I always do the history with the patient dressed because I feel it's less threatening to them. Um, And then what we do is once we complete our history, um, offer them a a drape and instruct them to uh, take their clothing off from the waist down, get onto the examining table and cover up with a drape. And I leave the room while they do that pull the, the drape the curtain across and then I also inform them that I'll be returning with my nurse so they know to expect two people to come back in for the examination sometimes with a resident as well um, then what we do is we try to get them into a either um, The stirrups, if we're using a gynecologic bed, or if we're not using gynec beds, such as in our office, I tend to not use stirrups. So what I do is I have them just put their heels together and their knees apart, and you get that sort of frog's leg uh, position. And it's very easy to do a vulvar exam in that in that situation. It's a lot easier if you have an adjustable table that goes up and down, so you can get it at the ideal height and good lighting. Yeah. And then we, of course, warn the patient we're going to be touching them, and we. First inspect the the sort of thighs and inguinal area and the uh, labial labia majora um, before even sort of examining further in and then do a very gentle um, opening up of the labia majora and examine the entire um, mucosal vulva from the clitoris right down to the the perineum and then also the perianal area. Sometimes we need to roll people over onto their side to examine the gluteal fold because that certainly can be involved with a lot of the diseases and then depending on what we see we may complete a full skin exam which we often do because as dermatologists we have that distinct advantage of being able to use clues from other parts of their skin to help us in making the correct diagnosis in the anal genital area.
0: Exactly, which I think, for me as a learner, I found a lot of times when you were doing even that exam, you'd see erythema, or you'd see irritation, or you'd see erosion, and then you needed to find those other clues, because many conditions can look the same. Exactly. And that's the biggest thing with
1: with genital dermatology, is making the right diagnosis, which can often be very difficult. The clinical presentation of a lot of different conditions can overlap. So looking in the mouth, looking in the scalp, looking on the skin,
0: can certainly help to um, to narrow down the possibilities. Yeah. Now, you know, I guess we can talk through... I wanted to cover a few things about common things that you see, looking at clinical classifications, but I guess maybe to skip ahead to just talking about biopsy or other um, investigations or or tests that you might do looking at vulvar skin, and then we could come back to maybe talking about conditions specifically. And so um, if you're going to do a biopsy... And so, so having been in your gyne-derm clinic, I realize it's actually fairly slick maneuver. Everything's ready. You've got it on a tray. Um, it's it's very good for the patients. But say I'm in my office or say I'm in a teaching clinic and I'm not in the gyne-derm clinic, what are some things that you really, what are must-haves for a good uh, vulvar biopsy from freezing to you know, hemostasis products?
1: So the first thing you need is you need another pair of hands because it's almost impossible to do this by yourself right. because you have to be stabilizing the skin, retracting the labia, doing your punch, cauterizing or whatever you're going to use for hemostasis. And so it's very important to have an assistant who can who can assist with positioning the patient correctly because you've got to get the right spot to biopsy. Secondly, what you, we use punches, and generally dermatologists use a 4 or 5 millimeter punch for this area. Yeah. Um, the skin twists very easily so you have to um, really stabilize it well to get a good uh, punch and you go the full depth of a punch just like you would anywhere else. Okay. I should backtrack and say that we just use xylocaine with epinephrine for a okay. local anesthetic as you would anywhere else. Right. Um, rarely do we use any um, uh, uh, topical anesthesia. We find it If you do do a quick injection of the xylocaine, it's it's fine. And then um, having some uh, forceps and some scissors and gently lifting the biopsy out of the hole, snipping at the base as you would any other biopsy, trying not to crush the tissue. Uh, You can use a needle to lift it as well as we sometimes do. And normally we don't suture the biopsies that we do in the vulva. We use chemical cautery. So you can use silver nitrate, you can use Monsell's solution, any, your favorite, basically chemical cautery. The mucosal surface heals very quickly
0: um, and we find we don't normally have to suture. Yeah, that's a great point. And I know that I remember using this sort of nice, thicker version of monsells mm-hmm. in the gynae derm clinic that i have never found anywhere else so I, it's a magical solution so i don't know how they do it but it's very <laughs> thick and it
1: just it just plugs the hole and you hold it for honestly less than a minute and usually you get great hemostasis but we always check and make sure we have good hemostasis we we provide right. the patient with a pad to put in in their underclothing for the ride home in case because they will get some even some of the sort of coffee ground like uh, material that comes off of the wound once you've actually cauterized it
0: right and of course review Aftercare, yeah, yeah, that that's great. And I mean, I do think that extra set of hands is key. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, if I ever have to do general biopsies in my office, I don't have an nurse, so I don't do them there. I bring them to the hospital, or I have the um, good fortune of being able to refer to the Guyney Derm Clinic for more complex cases. Now, okay, so. Now that we have all the information, I guess I want to talk a little bit about some of the common conditions and then maybe some of the uncommon conditions that you'd see in the vulvar area. So thinking first, I guess you probably would divide it into sort of your classic um, infectious inflammatory malignant. Would that be fair or-
1: Absolutely.
0: And then there is other.
1: (laughs) So so the commonest conditions that we see in our vulvar clinic are inflammatory. Mm -hmm. And so at the top of the list would be lichen sclerosis, um, psoriasis, lichen simplex chronicus, lichen planus. They would be the commonest inflammatory disorders we see. We also see some plasma cell vulvitis. um, And of course, dermatitis, just contact dermatitis, seborrheic dermatitis, um, atopic dermatitis that people have everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And then as far as um, infectious conditions, we don't see a ton of them in the gyne derm clinic. Uh, STDs are managed. We have a separate STD clinic, so that's sort of handled separately. A lot of the family docs will treat, obviously, the usual um, vaginal infections, um, and we try to avoid getting into treating those if, if we can, because right. we're really focusing on vulvar dermatology. Um, but we do see a lot of secondary candidiasis on the surface of the vulvar skin and mucosa and uh, this can be superimposed on any other inflammatory process or it can be primary um, with or without vaginal candidiasis. Um, one group that sort of really one has to c- consider when you see candida is um, if someone has really severe candidiasis and it's c- recurrent and resistant to treatment is, is to make sure that you've, you've checked them for diabetes because because diabetic women frequently have horrendous uh, candidiasis of the vulva, particularly if they're on glycosuria drugs because you excrete more sugar in
0: your urine and there's an increased incidence of candidiasis of the vulva in those women. See so where I thought you were going with that was to say screen them for HIV because of severe candida, yeah. but actually that would be far more common that you'd catch diabetes. Oh. We've diagnosed lots and lots of diabetes in the clinic, and okay. people didn't know
1: they had diabetes. But yes, you're right; it's much commoner than HIV. But another thing to consider, of course.
0: So in terms of infectious things, and you in the gyne germ clinic, you te- you wouldn't tend to see a whole lot of um, condylomata or molluscum per se. We tend not to.
1: We don't actually accept those referrals. We send them to the um, STD clinic where they okay. manage those. Yeah.
0: And I think for the purposes of the residents, you know, genital warts are treated the same as genital warts and molluscum treated as molluscum. And I think the big consideration there, which we could maybe talk about briefly, um, and this is more in the context of just genital dermatology, but let's say that, you know, not in a vulvar clinic specifically, but you're in your office and you see a, a younger person that you're concerned about genital warts or molluscum, do you ever find the need to bring up the idea of potential abuse or? This is
1: a really controversial topic, as you know. 35 years ago when I was training in dermatology, we, we were red flagged everybody that had a, every child that had a genital ward or molluscum was sent to the uh, scan program for, you know, suspected child abuse neglect. Um, however, we now have a better understanding of the infectivity of these viruses and understand that uh, contact through other um, Means besides sexual is certainly possible, and yeah. so I think you know it's it's a difficult situation, and I think as dermatologists we all wrestle with that question. Again, we don't tend to see a lot of children in our clinic, so we yeah, don't fair. deal with that. But in in my office, if I saw a child, I would certainly do some um, initial questioning about other people with warts in the family other people with musk in the family it's all age related if it's a teenager certainly you want to ask about sexual activity and it's an opportunity to talk about safe sex um and also to educate them about getting vaccinated against uh, um, hpv ah
0: excellent point excellent point okay i always forget about that as well not just in
1: the teenagers (laughs) Adults walking around that never got vaccinated and
0: everybody you're just running around with Gardasil and For everybody, where, where the Gardasil queens—that's right. Um, actually, not not specifically Gardasil. I think there's other options there too. Are, <laughs>
1: okay, but in general, the vaccine. One has to remember too that even in a mature age group, it sometimes is right. a good idea.
0: Yeah. Okay, so d- that was a little segue, but back to, um, back to talking about, so I guess one of the big things that I think we always think about, we always hear about, we was looking for is lichen sclerosis. And so in my head, I have that picture of the porcelain white figure of eight, you know, uh, changes in the anatomy. But what do you find are some clinical clues to maybe more early lichen sclerosis whereby making, um, starting treatment could actually impact the outcome and improve okay. the outcome? Very good question, because certainly, as
1: we all know, lichen sclerosis is a scarring process, and so the earlier we diagnose and treat, the less likely they're going to be developing scarring, and also reducing the risk of squamous cell carcinoma, which we know is elevated in this group of patients. So first of all, in history, almost all lichen sclerosis presents with itch. So I would I would go down that pathway if someone said that they were itchy. Okay. And uh, it can be chronic. Um, in terms of examination, in an early case, you really have to look hard for the por- what we call them porcelain white patches. And the commonest places to see those porcelain white patches in early lichen sclerosis are in the uh, Peri-clitoral area and in the interlabial celsus. So it's the, the crease between the labia minora and the labia majora, and then also in the perineum. So sometimes you have to really look hard in those three areas to find it, but you will. And then you have the benefit of giving the patient education on the diagnosis, um, making sure they understand this is a lifelong affliction, that they will have to treat themselves forever, but that because they're being d- diagnosed early, we can actually reverse some of those changes in early disease. And we could also go a long way towards preventing some of the destructive architectural changes and reducing the risk of squamous cell carcinoma. Yeah,
0: that's that's a really good point. And that's one of the things I like to talk to patients about, because I find once their itch is under control, many of them have the urge to stop treating. Um, here's a question from one of the residents. the world headquarters of the Dermalogues Podcast. Hi Dermalogues, this is Suzelle Fournier, and I am a dermatology resident at Laval University. My question is, is there a good grading score for genital lichen sclerosis? Is there a good grading score for genital lichen sclerosis?
1: There isn't. Um, Basically, we would use mild, moderate, and severe, and um, that
0: is used sort of universally by dermatologists and gynecologists who see people with lichen sclerosis. Now, how often will you see, so this is something I also recall, and I found it very striking as a resident, that many times in the vulvar clinic, patients would come in for, say, um, dysperonia, and then when you went to do the exam, you recognized that they had had very severe lichen sclerosis, probably in the younger age group, so the more pediatric version, and they had had destruction of their anatomy. How often do you see that? And then these people would be like, what? They had no idea. I don't think anyone ever looked. Yes. So this is a really interesting question, because as we all know from our reading, that
1: there are two sort of main peaks of onset of LS, it's childhood and then Mm postmenopausal. But you'll often get someone coming in who's 25, and they say they're kind of itchy, and it's maybe some dyspareunia. And you examine them, and you see really advanced changes that would be associated with a diagnosis of longstanding lichen sclerosis. So then we ask them the question, do you remember when you were a young girl having had some itching in this area? And, and oftentimes they will say, yeah, I was, You know, I went to the doctor, they gave me some cream, but the diagnosis is often not made in childhood, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they can still get the same destructive changes in childhood and they don't reverse. So whereas the disease can go into remission in adolescence, the destructive changes never go away. So that's one of the reasons we would see fairly advanced changes in a younger person.
0: Yeah. And that's, and I think that's a learning point for residents. And it's a point for myself as well. When I see people with any type of um, inflammatory condition I always ask about general involvement or if a child is sent for you know itch or their parent comments that they're itching in the perianal or general area like look mm-hmm. you know because I think um, the unfortunate part is it's uncomfortable sometimes for patients or parents or the care provider and then it gets missed which is far worse in my opinion yep um here's another resident question hi dermalogs this is Fatima al of the University of Alberta
1: Dermatology. My question is, we typically do not biopsy lichen sclerosis. Are there any clinical factors which might prompt you to biopsy genital lichen sclerosis? For sure. And I agree. We don't normally uh, biopsy for diagnosis if it's a classic presentation, because oftentimes you're disappointed. The biopsy report doesn't actually confirm your clinical impression, but you're 100% sure clinically that this is classic LS. So we don't do that. The reason that the biopsy may be negative is because there's a lot of secondary change from moisture and maceration and maybe secondary infection. And it can be really hard for the pathologist who can be very good to see the classic changes of LS. So we've we've sort of stopped doing random, routine biopsies for LS diagnosis. So the times when we would be inclined to do a biopsy in LS would be if a patient complains of pain in one particular area, and when you examine them, they have an indurated or ulcerated lesion, you have to biopsy them because it is probably a squamous cell carcinoma. So a patient that goes along and they're doing pretty well, and they call the clinic and they say, Oh, I'm having all this pain, you bring them right in because pain is a hallmark of squamous cell in lichen sclerosis. So that's your number one, two, three reason to biopsy. Okay. Um, if you have, a, you're treating and you usually follow these patients every six months to a year, depending on how severe they are and, and how far along in, in the course they are, um, if they have a particular area that's really resistant to treatment, particularly if it's thickened, hypertrophic, then you would biopsy that as well. Okay. Or if it has a red, a distinct red patch, because you don't usually get red patches in LS, you would biopsy that because those could both be the precancerous stage uh, called VIN or l um, right. that you'd want to diagnose and treat prior to it evolving into squamous cell carcinoma. Um, and I guess the third thing is if you think you have the right diagnosis, maybe the features aren't 100% classic and they're not responding to treatment and you've gone through all the other reasons why someone may not respond to treatment and you've ruled them all out, then you may biopsy just to confirm your diagnosis.
0: Ie like they're using the cream they're putting Yeah, it properly, those are the big cetera. the biggest reason people Good don't difference.
1: respond to treatment is that they don't use their their topical properly. So that's a whole other discussion we can have.
0: Well, and that's what I was going to move into next, which would be sort of your what's your I well, I know it, but to share with the other residents, um what is your general treatment approach and algorithm for um, vulvar lichen sclerosis? So in
1: all patients who have not been treated, who present to our clinic, regardless of age, and this is important, this includes children, we start with a high-potency topical steroid ointment. And we would use clobetazole, first choice, always in an ointment base, use everything you use in the vulvar, in the genital area in general, men and women should always be in an ointment if available. And we start with clobetazole ointment twice a day initially for one to two months, depending on how severe their disease is. And then we ask them to step it down to once a day. And then we usually bring them back at about the four-month point. And at that point, we assess their response to treatment, both in terms of symptoms and signs. If they've done remarkably well, then we aim to reduce the strength of their topical steroid for maintenance. So I would go down to something like betamethasone valerate, full strength, applied once daily. And then, again, six months later, if they're doing really well, we may step that down one more time to, say, half-strength metamethasone, valerate 0.05%. And you keep going down until you get to the lowest concentration of steroid that controls their disease. The other option is for some people prefer to stay with a high-potency steroid and use it less often, so two or three times a week. Personally, I find that's more difficult from a compliance point of view, but it is an acceptable treatment in, in an exam situation.
0: Right, that's what I was gonna ask you. You can either decrease frequency or decrease exactly. potency, exactly. basically. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now is pro topic or are our topical calcineurin inhibitors ever okay for lichen sclerosis? So
1: um, yes. Now, you know that when you first start using calcineurin inhibitors, you get a, a fair bit of um, irritation. So we're you know, we already treating an, an uncomfortable lesion with something that's going to make them more uncomfortable. So sometimes it's hard to get over that hump. Um, I don't tend to use a lot of calcineurin inhibitors for LS or LP in the vulva. Um, the reason being that I don't think they work as well to initiate a control. Um, you may use them for someone who has very mild disease to sort of maintain control, particularly if they are somewhat steroid phobic. But we get such good results with the topical steroids. We do not have a fear of um, adverse effects of topical steroids on mucosal surfaces because they're very resistant to that, those uh, right. uh, effects. And we know the safety profile. The other issue was, of course, the whole black box warning, which I know is evolving now. Um, and so we know these patients have a higher risk of squamous cell carcinoma. There was a label saying, and there still is in some cases, saying this may give you cancer. So, you know, if they did get a squamous cell and you did have them on something like that, you may be in a difficult <laughs> yeah. legal situation.
0: Especially so, if you live cell susceptible. Exactly. And that's kind <laughs> yeah. of
1: where we get a lot of our education from in gyneodermists from right. the US. So, so we tend, I mean, right. we do use it in so, some people, but mostly if they are reluctant to use a Topical steroid.
0: Okay. And then do you tend to follow these people more or less forever, or do you feel that after a period of time with good compliance and good stability that they could be managed by a primary care physician? Absolutely.
1: We can't possibly follow every lichen sclerosis patient. But what we do is we follow them until we feel we have them under control. And usually on a regimen, either they'll decrease frequency or, or decrease strength of, of steroid. Um, and it depends on the severity of the disease. If they have quite severe disease, we keep following them because those are the ones that have the higher risk of developing a squamous cell. And we see that often. So we need to be on top of those patients. And not that the family doctor isn't. They're just not seeing as much of it. But for for people that are well-controlled with mild to moderate disease and a family doctor who's willing to accept them back or a primary care that's willing to accept them back into their care, we definitely transfer them back and invite them to re-refer if there's a problem or concern.
0: Okay. Yeah. Good point. Now you did mention along the way there LP, and I find it particularly challenging sometimes to tell the difference between early LS if there's not a lot of classic white change and and um, maybe erosive or mucosal LP. Are there any clinical so, features? Or- you're very
1: right, very correct there, Carrie, in saying that um, mucosal LP is usually erosive. So when we see LP on the vulva in the vagina, it is the erosive form. It is not hypertrophic. It's not papular or plaque-like and it usually presents more with pain rather than itch because it is erosive but you're quite right you can get architectural changes in the vulva Um, you don't get the white sclerotic plaques Mm -hmm. that you would get in ls so you really have to look hard for those and um, look for sort of well demarcated red eroded patches
0: And I guess that would be an opportunity where you'd be looking the buccal mucosa, you'd look for other sort of features in keeping with LP. Um, Also thinking about the difference between lichen sclerosis and lichen simplex, um, I know clinically they look very different, but I find sometimes other physicians or learners or... Um, Patients don't tend to know the difference. What are your key clinical features for um, LSC or lichen simplex? I should stop using the term LS. It's too confusing. But Lichen Lichen
1: simplex simplex. chronicus. So lichen simplex chronicus, um, some of the differences that we point out to our learners are that it usually is asymmetric so that um, oftentimes one side is much more involved than the other. It's usually on the hair-bearing surface of the labia majora and not on the mucosal surface where LS lives. Um, And of course, you see the classic features of like but you can see some erosions, but you do not
0: see any architectural changes. Okay. Okay. So that's the key feature there. And do you, what would be your treatment approach for that as well? Do you tend to use ultra potent topical no, steroids? No, I don't or? use ultra potent topical
1: steroids for LSC. We usually start in with a medium potency topical steroid. And what I tend to do is I tend to give them a, a month or two months, depending on how severe they are of using the topical steroid routinely, regardless of it, mm-hmm. to try to sort of dampen down some of that hypertrophy and that paritic a response and I also um, would give them. So I'd give them medium potency topical steroid ointment, uh, twice a day for a month, and then decrease to bid prn. I'd also introduce a an antihistamine for itch because most of these patients scratch at night time. So a sedating antihistamine at night time. Um, I would also go through in great detail vulvar skincare. Okay. Um, particularly um, noting things that should be avoided, and also uh, advice about other things they can use. If you're dry, you can use some Vaseline if it itches, you can put a a cold pack on. So giving them sort of of generic, non-medical, medication-related
0: advice as well. Now, would you ever use... I've never done this, and I don't know, so it seems... But it just came into my mind. So, you know, if if there's a patient that has a, a plaque of lichen simplex somewhere else and it's not responding to that type of treatment, I tend to inject it with intralesional steroid. Would you do the Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So we use intralesional steroids a lot in the clinic. So we getting back to like niscrosis, if you have some areas that you've biopsied and they're persistent, but they're not premalignant malignant, malignant, then a little intralesional steroid helps. Certainly for erosive LP, it's great. But LSC, again, yes, combining that with your topical therapy and your antihistamines and your vulvar skin care, intralesional steroids are of great value.
0: Now I'm just thinking about the way, when you are explaining to a patient how much and where to apply a topical steroid, do you use a diagram? Do you uh, point, like how do you do that to make sure that they're not just like glopping it on or conversely not using enough? It's so
1: critical. Um, You really do have to spend a lot of time showing them. Patients, where to apply their ointment. So, we do use a diagram and it's a pre printed diagram, and we use a a highlighter pen to kind of identify the area that they should be putting a product and go over that with them. But we also use a mirror and actually demonstrate live exactly Uh, where to put stuff.
0: Much better. And
1: a lot of women aren't used to looking at their vulvas, so it can be a little uncomfortable, but it's really helpful. Um, And the other thing is we review where not to apply because oftentimes people want to put their topical steroid on the outer surface of the labia majora, which is exactly where you don't need. Unless you have LSC or psoriasis. And um, as far as amount, we tell them to use, like, for LS. Half of a pea size of ointment okay. because ointment spreads so much, you don't need to use a ton. So that's okay. the sort of quantity we tend to use.
0: Okay. Do you ever have a specific patient that's like, What type of pea? We have edamame had a mommy bean. Like, what are you talking? We have had that question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's actually super useful because when you show a patient how to apply and how much to apply and where to apply, it makes a huge difference. Like, especially when they're their own um, model, if you will. For yes. example, Um, now the other thing I, people are always so scared about, and you did mention this already, but people are always so scared about, you know, atrophy of the skin, thinning of the skin. Um, and, and I find, for me, if people have overused steroid in the genital area, it tends to be more striae and stretch marks that are happening, not so much, you know, tears and purpura and any of that. Has that been your experience also?
1: Absolutely. And as I mentioned earlier, the mucosal surface can, can handle topical steroid very well. But when you're treating a condition that's on the hair-bearing skin, keratinized skin, then you have to be really careful about weaning people down, not giving them a lot of excess of a product, and also weeding them down as quickly as possible to a low-potency steroid PRN. But you don't see you don't see purpura, you don't see telangiectasia. What you do see is striae, which are really common, and even extending onto the thighs.
0: And I was just going to say that some of the residents may be listening to this And they may be listening to the male genital podcast, you know, around the same time and say, well, well, you know, Dr. Dwaran said something different. And I think part of it probably really has to do with the fact that there's less mucosal skin on, on the penis compared with the vulva, where it's all mucosal skin that you're treating. So I think that's important to remember that you can use different steroids, different potencies on different types of skin. And that even though both are genital skin, they're inherently very different between male and female genital skin. Um... Just shifting gears over to psoriasis, Uh, so, you know, as I mentioned, I always like to make sure that I ask about genital involvement, because a lot of patients either have never been asked, or they don't think about it, or they don't think it's related. Um, Do you see a ton of genital psoriasis in your practice, or does that tend to be just... Less common when you're seeing more of the other inflammatory conditions. No, we see
1: a fair bit of genital psoriasis, and um, we're quite proud that our gynecology colleagues are learning to recognize not just on the vulva, but they're excited when they find plaques on the elbows and in the scalp, (laughs) and they think they've high five. High five is right. In any case, yes, we do see a fair bit of psoriasis, and I agree with with Carrie that uh, people often are a little shy talking about this area of involvement. So when you're seeing a psoriasis patient in your general derm. Clinic or office, just make sure you ask them because if you ask them, they'll be very grateful and want to tell you about it because it's very uncomfortable. It's very right. very itchy. It's one of the places where psoriasis is often very itchy, is the genital area. So certainly do ask, and then we treat very similarly to how we treat psoriasis other places. But again, bearing in mind that psoriasis involves the keratinized skin, so you're going to go with sort of medium potency steroids down to low potency. You may use um, some um, calcitriol or calcipotriol. You may use um, some a little bit of tar. Uh, so there you can certainly incorporate all of the topicals that you would use, most of the topicals you would use for psoriasis elsewhere in the genital area. And there's really nothing special about it. You just treat it like you would psoriasis in any other location. Oftentimes, people with genital psoriasis will have inverse psoriasis. So you have to make sure right. you also check in for involvement under the breast, under the axillae, because they, they, again, don't always associate these things with one another.
0: Right. Right. And I always like to remind the residents that genital area is a special site so that they don't need to, to qualify for more, um, I don't want to use the term aggressive, but different treatments, different systemics. Um, genital involvement alone, if it's severe, can certainly impact quality of life and doesn't. they don't require 10% of their body surface to be eligible for those treatments. Um, I was just going to ask, and this is sort of not specifically related to psoriasis, but just thinking about using topicals and using adjuvant topicals, and I, I find a lot of... Um, older or post peri postmenopausal women are applying topical estrogen uh, estrogen based products is that to help with more lubrication of the tissue and allow other topicals to be absorbed better, or is there something else to it?
1: Well, I think it's an excellent question. So in the postmenopausal period, if women are not on systemic hormone replacement therapy, it's not uncommon for them to develop symptoms of what we call atrophic vulvovaginitis, vaginitis, which is basically estrogen depletion. So that can be a, a secondary condition along with their LS or their psoriasis or their LSC or their LP. So one wants to address both conditions Conditions because their response will only be partial if you only address the inflammatory condition. Um, so that's one part of it. In and of itself, atrophic vulvovaginitis can be itchy and right. painful. Um, secondly, just like you said, Carrie, if you it, I, I, I liken it to treating atopic dermatitis and using moisturizers. If you don't use a moisturizer in an atopic, and all you use is their topical steroid, they're not going to do as well. It's the same with estrogen. If you use topical estrogen, it improves the integrity of the tissue, therefore, it responds better to whatever treatment you're using for their other primary process. We tend to use um, intravaginal uh, estrogen at times if people are complaining of vaginal dryness. We tend to use topical estrogen creams and a variety of uh, combinations uh, for the actual mucosal surface of the vulva. What we do avoid is highly scented product and there is one product on the market that's very commonly used because it's been the oldest kid on the block and unfortunately there's a very strong perfuming smell and of course we all know as dermatologists that when someone has an inflammatory condition we do not want to use a scented product on top of that so one has to be a little bit familiar with the products that are out there but don't be afraid to prescribe them they're also considered very safe and and that's often for people that are have concerns about using hormone replacement therapy we can say this is just working where we put it as long as you follow the guidelines in terms of dosing and and frequency then your absorption systemically is almost unmeasurable and so um, you still have to be wary of things like postmenopausal bleeding and history of breast cancer and all those sorts of things but one can use their judgment and consult with their other treating physicians to see whether they're comfortable with the safety of using these products but you should get familiar with them because they really make everything else work better in that age group.
0: And I find when I'm giving patients more than one topical preparation, the big question for them is when do I put it? How do I do it? What order do I do it? So if you're going to give them, say, clobetazole ointment and you're giving them um, an estrogen cream, do you? how do you advise them to use it?
1: So I don't usually, when I first see an LS patient, for example, and I'm going to prescribe clobetazole BID, I don't usually start the estrogen right away for the ah. reason that if someone has an adverse reaction, we don't know which product is yeah. causing it. Okay. So I generally introduce the topical steroid first, because that's going to give you the most bang for your buck. Right. And then when they come back for their follow-up and we're at the point of decreasing the frequency of their topical steroid to once a day, then if, if they need it, we do introduce the um, estrogen at that point. So they would use one in the morning and one at night of their choice. Okay.
0: Now, I think we could probably do, you know, multiple hours just on inflammatory conditions of the vulva. I just want to take a couple of minutes to talk about malignant things. And we have touched on concerns for squamous cell carcinoma or secondary squames in sort of chronically inflamed skin. Would there be other malignancies that you would be on the lookout for in general when you're doing a vulvar exam?
1: So first, in terms of squamous cell, there are basically two different types of squamous cell carcinoma that you can get in the genital area. You can get the HPV-related squamous cell carcinoma, okay, um, and then you can get the, the SCC that's, that's secondary to chronic inflammation, like in okay. lichen sclerosis. Yeah, And they look different on biopsy. And this is quite a challenge for a pathologist because the one that happens, the squamous cell that you get in lichen sclerosis is called differentiated VIN before it's a squamous cell. And it's actually harder to diagnose because it's a more subtle findings on both but it's actually a more clinically aggressive form of squamous cell. So the squamous cell associated with HPV is kind of low-grade, The squamous cell associated with um, LS and LP is very aggressive. So that's why we're so in- insistent on Biopsying and bringing people in quickly if they develop a painful, non-healing lesion okay. in these conditions. So yes. squamous cell is the big one, and we yeah. see a fair bit of that. Um, we see precancer, so we see uh, w- what was called VIN of uh, uh, vulvar yes. intraepithelial neoplasia, or now called LCL, um, yeah. just a different terminology. But basically, um, identifying those and treating them appropriately. Obviously, if it's HPV related, we treat them with Aldera or, or Viloma. If it's um, if it's a uh, non HPV related, then we would send them to the gynec oncology group to take care of surgically. Um, So squamous cells, the big one, um, and the uh, pre-cancerous variants of that. And then the next most common that we tend to see is probably melanoma. And it's not that common. So there's a big gap between those two, but we certainly always want to look for melanoma. And we do get a lot of referrals for pigmentation in the vulva. And of course, you see these, these irregular dark brown patches sort of here there and everywhere on someone's vulva and the question is is this a new melanoma or is this what we call um labial melanosis which is a benign condition so um we certainly see a lot of that we do biopsy all of those because if, if you biopsy one area and it comes back as benign labial melanosis then you can be sort of rest assured the rest of it's probably the right. same and that you don't have to do anything because it doesn't have any premalignant potential. Right. But we do see vulvar melanomas. They would present like melanomas anywhere else. Yeah. You know, they'd be growing rapidly. They would be irregular. all of the features of melanoma. But remember that you can get them developing on the mucosal surface as well. And some of the ones we see weren't obvious when you first examined the patient. But if you sort of open up a little further, you can just see it tucked inside the introitus. So have a really good look, especially if someone's complaining of a painful lesion there. Um, we do see Paget's disease occasionally in that area right, as well. Yeah so you have to remember that it has a sort of classic presentation as well and those would be about the three big ones.
0: So, and again, this is like vulvar dermatology in 45 minutes or less, so there's still a ton of things to cover, and I guess that leads me to my next couple of questions, which is, let's say somebody that has, a resident really wants to learn more, or somebody has a passion, and they think, I want to do some vulvar dermatology. Are there any resources in textbooks, conferences, things that you might recommend that they could consider? So,
1: yes. Yeah, so, there's a, there's an international association of people who do vulvar dermatology. It's called the International Society for the the Study of Vulval Vaginal Diseases, or ISSVD. And they have a website. It's issvd.org. And you can actually access a lot of the um, handouts, the um, uh, criteria for treatment, the treatment protocols, all of that on their website. You can join and become a member and attend the meetings. They have a meeting uh, in North America every... Second year in Chicago, they're now starting to have some in other sites. They have one in Montreal a year or so ago. They're having a few others. And then they have international meetings as well, which are really quite interesting because you get perspective from all around the world. So if you really have a passion, you can join that group, even just to get their information and be on their you know, receive their communications and their updates. It's very, very helpful. There are a couple of very good um, textbooks and atlases of, of vulvar dermatology that um, – mostly come out of the U.S. and uh, you could certainly access those as well. Um, That's probably, those are probably the two best sources. Okay, cool, cool.
0: Well, listen, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, before I bid you adieu, um, any clinical tips, pearls, little things that you've learned along the way that you just think, hey, we really should share that with the residents or that you wish you could tell every Canadian dermatology resident like you know, Mary Lou says. Mary Lou says. This. <laughs> okay. Hashtag Mary Lou says.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the biggest issues is listening to the patient and getting a really good history. And I know that sometimes we rush through that, but you got to spend the time. Yeah. And because this group of patients is obviously very needy as well, and they've often been to many different doctors before they see you, so you really have to make sure that they understand that you are very actually interested in what they have and you do want to help them, and you probably can. Um, and secondly, when you... Um, do your examination. Um, be really, really thorough. You know, it's so easy to just do a quick little look, and you really have to just kind of be really specific about, you know, examining every little part and don't forget to, to go right around to the back. Um, and I guess thirdly is we review with the patient at every visit why they're treating this condition and why they need to con- treat this condition for example, in LS for the rest of their lives. And you have to reiterate that at every visit because, as Carrie said, invariably people, when they start to feel better, will stop their treatment. And sometimes they'll be told to by a pharmacist or a family doctor who doesn't understand. So really review all the three main reasons for treating LS are symptom control, prevention of destructive changes, and reducing the risk of squamous cell carcinoma. If you say that over and over again, they may be able to stick with it. Um, I guess you know fourthly you got to have time for some of these patients and that's a hard thing in a in a general dermatology office so sometimes having a specialty clinic is great because we can take a little bit more time we have great nurses who support us and help with education having handouts give them to the patients revolver vulvar skin care what is you know lichen sclerosis? get you can get those sorts of handouts through the resources that i mentioned and have them available if you do a lot of vulvar dermatology because there's too much to, for people to hold in their heads but if you give them something that's reliable to read rather than what they read on the internet then at least they'll be they'll be better educated and i guess the last thing is don't be afraid to ask for help so if you have a resource in your community we get calls and emails and texts from our former residents all the time. Um, and you we're, mean me. We're happy, to, we're happy to provide that advice because, you know, it's, it's important. But, you know, try to tap into a resource that you can, you can channel um, in your community as well that you can get some help with because it's not always as in a textbook. As you know, with all dermatology, people don't always present the way they're supposed to, so sometimes the cases are really challenging, and getting another opinion from someone who maybe has done a little bit more of it is also very helpful.
0: Listen, I think those are amazing clinical pearls, and the resident should just listen to those last five things over and over, mm-hmm. and and I think that would really serve them well. So Mary Lou, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Dermalogs. I've really appreciated learning more yet again from you, and um, I was happy to have you join me tonight. Thank you, Carrie. So that's me, Dr. Carrie Purdy, signing off from Dermalog Season 2. <laughs> That was Mary Lou Gallant talking to us about vulvar dermatology. She's an assistant professor at Dalhousie University and runs a vulvar dermatology clinic here in Halifax, Nova Scotia. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes and if you liked it, give us a rating. You can share with your colleagues and if you have any questions about this or future episodes, you can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at CDA President. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.